It's the 28th of January, 2018, and this is episode 353 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Stephanie Murphy. Hi. Jonathan Mohan. Hey. And special guest, author and writer, Charles Hugh Smith. Hi. Hey, everybody. Thanks for being here today. So here we are in the middle of the bubble. Charles, let's just jump right into it. What happens when the dollar is no longer the globally dominant reserve currency? Well, could you start with an easier question? (laughs) Yeah, jumping right in there, Adam. It's a great question, and it's on a lot of people's minds as the dollar is tanking the fastest rate in, what, 15 years or something. And sort of my context for this is anything that introduces a greater number of market participants and more transparency into any market is a positive thing, right? So if we're looking at currencies, the more currency choices people have, then the better for the ecosystem of currencies in general, which is why I've been a fan of cryptocurrencies, even from my very amateurish understanding of the technologies. Do we need a global reserve currency? It feels like while global is something that may have expanded over time in terms of definition, there have always been sort of tokens of the realm and then tokens that are valuable sort of at a meta level beyond any individual country. So is this just kind of naturally the predilection that we go down when humans start to, you know, run into each other socially? And also we all have these different forms of money. If we go back to the balloon or the British pound or, or any former version of the reserve currency, it was fundamentally around trust, right? In other words, everybody anywhere on the planet could trust that the Spanish real or the British pound was worth X amount in their local economy. And so what we're really, I think, talking about is trust, which is based on security and transparency. And that's why the blockchain cryptocurrencies seem so ideal as potential forms of reserve currencies, because they are, in fact, trustworthy and they're transparent and there's an implicit security to them that's lacking in the fiat currencies. So that's kind of a long-winded answer. And what I mean to say is if there's more options for reserve currencies, then that's better for the ecosystem. Hopefully we can see the introduction of cryptocurrencies as one of those reserve currencies options. One of the things that I've been talking with people about recently is whether the moves by Venezuela to introduce a cryptocurrency that they're backing with their local resources, right? Whether that's the kind of first indication of the direction that governments might go with this sort of technology, or if that's kind of just like a desperate flailing outlier, right? Years ago, we talked about this in the context of Greece when they were having their issues, because one of the problems with a country like Greece is that they've burned through a couple of different national currencies over the last 40, 50 years. And so there isn't a lot of trust for them were they to leave the euro. But you could see something like Bitcoin used as a reserve currency in a way that might actually make it so you don't need to trust the government because it's transparent, auditable, and even provable. Right. And then we get into the question which you raised with Venezuela's, who's the issuer of the cryptocurrency that's being presented as a reserve currency? And we should maybe just cover real quickly, what does a reserve currency even mean? And it it basically means it's like a savings account's to handle your trade transactions and to provide a little bit of gravitas to your own local currency, right? So that in currency runs, you would kind of draw from your currency reserve savings account, you know? 
And so that's really what we're talking about is something that you hold in, in reserve as a kind of counterbalance to any fluctuations or uh, crises in your local currency. But the ideal, of course, is to use your reserve currency as your own currency. And that's part of the strength of the euro and the yuan and the dollar. So when you say you, you're talking about governments, obviously. But the funny thing about using the analogy of a savings account is that most governments really don't operate that way. They don't actually have like a surplus of funds in a savings account. It's more like they operate at a deficit. So talk about that a little bit. If you're borrowing tons of money just to keep your government functioning, then the currency you hold in reserve is, is obviously insufficient to cover your fiscal deficits. And so it's really there to back up a particular kind of crisis, which would be a run on your currency or a large decline in the value of your local currency due to over issuance, right? Like how do, how do countries like Venezuela get in trouble to where their currency's lost most of its value? Well, they're over issuing their currency as kind of a cheap and quick way of paying their bills. And so, as you say, when you're running deficits, that that's sort of the end game of fiat currencies is you just create money out of thin air to pay your bills. And eventually you flooded your economy with this overabundance of fiat currency. And it you know, supply and demand, it loses its value. Yeah, it makes me think of like Fort Knox and there's like, there's no gold in Fort Knox. <laughs> yeah. And to me, it's very interesting how there's these two kind of polar opposites. There's a large group of people who believe that governments should acquire mass amounts of gold and back their currencies with gold. And this is the future because that's what worked in the past is a gold-backed currency. And then there's another camp of which I guess I'm in, which looks to cryptocurrencies as perhaps a better solution in many cases than gold. And why would that be? Well, cryptocurrencies, there's just so many variations in the crypto space that it gives more options to governments, especially small governments that have been at kind of at the mercy of the super currencies like the dollar and the euro. Yeah, I mean, one of the obvious advantages that comes to mind is if you literally think of something like Fort Knox, which is supposed to be like a facility to store physical gold, even though that may not actually be the reality, like, think about a cryptocurrency wallet that could exist on somebody's computer as like a multi-sig account or something like that. And there's so many more security options, the storage space and the, the control of access is so much better. What do you see as the advantages, Charles? Well, in my utopian scheme, and I will say that, you know, knowing that it may never come to pass, but also knowing that a lot of utopian schemes end up becoming reality decades later when the benefits have become obvious to the majority of people. In my utopian scheme, there's uh, cryptocurrencies that are labor-backed. In other words, they're not created by a software mechanism like Bitcoin. They're created when people perform useful, productive labor in their local communities. And so this mechanism would create a limited amount of coins because there's only so much productive labor that can be done by any one person in any one day or within a community. And so it's not like a fiat currency that can be created in the trillions of units overnight. And so it has a function where it serves the community, but because it's limited in issuance, it could become a reserve currency for extremely poverty-stricken countries that couldn't buy, say, Bitcoin any more than they could buy gold. And so part of um, part of my interest in cryptocurrencies, despite my technical amateurism, is that how do we solve entrenched global poverty? 
And it's just so clear to me that cryptocurrencies have a mass potential here. And one of them is if a country could create cryptocurrencies in, in a sustainable fashion out of its own activity, out of its own economic activity, and then use that as a reserve currency, then it would bypass this whole thing where it has to sort of raise cash by selling its own assets, basically, to buy gold or the dollar or the euro or the yuan or, you know, some other external form of reserve currency. So there's a lot to unpack about this. So is this basically the labor theory of value, Charles? I mean, do you basically believe that value comes from having labor attached to it? Tell me more about that. Yeah, well, it's a fascinating topic and uh, cut me off if I start, you know, rambling, okay? <laughs> because I've tried to give this a lot of thought, but sometimes I you know, get ahead of myself and a bunch of ideas get tossed together in a jumble. But the labor value that you're referring to is, of course, part of the classical Marxist economic theory, which says that ultimately the value of any commodity or service, it goes back to how much labor was part of the input. And of course, that's been largely discredited in the conventional view because we use technology and energy now to leverage human labor. And so the human labor input part of our industrial production just keeps shrinking, right? So that, that sort of labor value theory doesn't seem to hold water because we're looking at the input from labor just falling in like a straight line in the production of commodities and goods and services. Right. The opposite of the labor theory of value would be like the subjective theory of value, where value comes from how much people value something. So it, the value of something is driven by essentially how valuable enough people find it. And we talk about that a lot when we talk about the price of cryptocurrencies, right? Because yeah, there is proof of work that goes into Bitcoin and securing the network and mining Bitcoin and all that. But there are certain cryptocurrencies that have proof of stake and they really don't have that proof of work attached to them or other algorithms that they use to secure themselves. And the value of Bitcoin, people always say like Bitcoin isn't backed by anything. Well, it's backed by people's faith in it and the value that people find in it, how much people are willing to kind of pay for it in fiat currencies. And so I think it's interesting to to talk about this philosophical distinction. Bitcoin personally has taught me a lot about subjective value, I suppose. I think everybody, when they first heard about Bitcoin, is like, well, how can that have any value? Because it's just a computer program. It comes out of thin air. Well, maybe value is subjective and it's determined by what people are willing to pay for something. No, I think you're right. I would just add like sort of a third input to this discussion on top of the intrinsic value of labor, which is one thing we're talking about, and then the subjective nature of value. Economist Michael Spence has written a lot recently about the impact of scarcity and abundance on what we value, right? And his basic take is conventional labor and conventional capital. You know, in other words, sort of the, the working class, sort of lo low skill labor that predominates the global labor market, it doesn't really have much value because it's super abundant. And that's why wages are falling globally for the vast majority of people. And then conventional capital, you know, the kind you can borrow, you know, because interest rates are so low and you can borrow it from the central bank or from a, a money center bank. This also has no value because it's also super abundant. Hence, the return on conventional capital is very low. But his point is what's scarce is like new ideas in organizing a production of goods and services and organizing social goods. And, and in other words, it's really the good ideas 
that are scarce. And that's where the rewards are going asymmetrically. And I believe that his explanatory structure helps us understand why cryptocurrencies went from, say, less than a billion dollars for the entire space to like 550 billion or whatever it is today. Why was there such an explosion of value? Well, because the cryptocurrencies issue so many new ideas that have so much leverage, productive, positive leverage in the production of goods and services. Since basically the beginning of the show, one of the things that we've talked about is how what cryptocurrency at its core presents is new possibilities that can be applied to old problems. And a lot of times, especially in the early days, you basically saw two types of people. You saw people who were kind of on the younger side of things and trying to solve problems. And they saw this as the best path forward. And then you also saw this whole kind of demographic of people who are 65 or older who had struggled for years and years and years in prior careers and jobs and things like that to solve a problem. And they also were looking at this and saying, aha, that thing I couldn't solve back then, I actually can solve now using this type of technology. So that checks out for me. <laughs> yeah, no, it's fascinating that you bring up those two demographics because, for instance, the topic of really erasing or changing the dynamic of entrenched poverty, like we see in, in so-called third world or developing countries where the, the poverty is endemic and there's the corruption's endemic and the centralized governance has failed for decades and so on. How do we solve that? And so all these things about the Bill Gates Foundation and blah, blah, what I call philanthrocapitalism, it sort of makes dents here and there. And I'm not disparaging efforts to eliminate terrible diseases and all that. But in terms of like actually changing the trajectory, none of these things work. In fact, there's a number of great books by people who spent decades in anti-poverty foundation sort of ecosystem. Just saying the whole thing's BS, it's all failed, it'll never succeed, the whole approach is wrong, it's top down, right? It's always like Western rich people coming and, and saying, oh, well, what you need here is a school and then all that stuff and failing to understand the local economy and failing to set up local governance. And so to me, the power that I see the potential of in cryptocurrencies is it relocalizes everything. In other words, the cryptocurrency that's issued within the local community, and by that I mean it could be a global community like Steemit or something, right? In other words, that's the power of the thing. But it can be issued under certain guidelines that reward productive activity. And then it arises out of productive activity, and then it can be used within that local community. And poverty is definitely related to a lack of money. And that seems so like stupid to say, but it's like, it, it, it's not solved by just dumping fiat currencies from airplanes or something. You actually have to create productive capacity in, in an economy so that people can earn the money and then they have something that they can buy. And so cryptocurrencies really fill that space. So we're talking about Africa and we're talking about the problems that are preventing sort of progress within those communities. If corruption is a problem, from a practical standpoint, one of the things that's nice about proof of work is that although it is a, a money burning contest, basically, it is a demonstrably provable global money burning process, right? Where people are devoting computational resources, which takes power and which takes equipment in order to do this thing. And anybody who's looking at this can actually see that not only is work being done, but productive work that follows the rules is being done. So it strikes me that in a system where you're talking about local empowerment, 
the problem of governance really has almost nothing to do with cryptocurrency. And that, I think, is a big problem with this technology right now when you try to apply it to that sort of a problem. Is one of the nice things about cryptocurrency, like in the Greece example, it's a global opt-out, right? If your currency is not doing well, you, if you can, trade it into Bitcoin or something else. And then whatever happens with your local currency, you know, all of your money isn't tied to that. It's not a Cyprus situation anymore. It just becomes a quickly a question of how does something like that not devolve into all of the same problems? Because the people who are causing the issues now are the same people who will have to determine what is productive work, right? Like there's no universal standard for that and who decides the quality of this work is sufficient in order to meet that and corruption seems like it really could come back into that so at a structural global level i could see how you could do that but i still think that like most of the problems about global poverty really have more to do with kind of local leadership structures and and that sort of incentive program or am i missing something no i think you raise an excellent point and what we're talking about is centralized corruption and if we read the accounts of people who have spent decades in this sort of anti-poverty environment, whether they're in non-governmental NGOs or government agencies, we find that the corruption is so successful because it's so centralized. In other words, there's a handful, a small elite at the top of the national wealth power pyramid that gets all the money through corruption and fraud and so on, and very little trickles down. And so I foresee that the solution is let a thousand flowers bloom, to use Mao's famous phrase. In other words, if a thousand small communities are empowered to create their own cryptocurrencies, then it's really hard to corrupt a thousand different villages. And it's a lot easier if there's only one mechanism that you have to wrest control of. And so I've reached the conclusion that centralization itself is the core cause of all corruption. And if you go through a radical decentralization, then you've eliminated corruption at its source. And of course, that fits in really nicely with the philosophy and technology of cryptocurrencies, which are essentially created on any number of servers that are decentralized. And so I don't think you can get rid of all corruption because it's built into human nature to try to get a windfall without producing anything, which is what corruption is. But you can put enough obstacles in front of it that it's reduced by just the friction of the system that's set up to overcome it. And just to give a quick example, India is well known as a very corrupt society. And it's a mass frustration to the average person who doesn't have any leverage or power. And so they have to give all these bribes just to get the simplest things done. And of course, if you're doing things digitally, then you bypass all that. There's no human element there. And so the potential for automating a lot of these processes, it wipes out the human intervention. In other words, if there's no way that a corrupt official controls a transaction in the blockchain, then there's no opportunity for corruption. Right. It's always the interfaces that cause the problems. Yes. Charles, I know you said you're not particularly technical, but I'm just wondering like, about the practicalities of even trying to tie a cryptocurrency to labor. It brings to mind the Ithaca hours. Do you guys remember that? Like, I think we've talked about that on the show. There was a group of people that tried to make sort of a, a labor-backed currency and as far as I know, it's still kind of going on, but I'm sure there were some challenges to it, right? Because it's like, is every hour of labor equally valuable, no matter who does it? And how would you accomplish that in sort of a decentralized way where it's not like one person at the top saying, okay, this hour counts and this hour doesn't. And 
You do with vouching and reputation systems. It's complex, right? It's a layered process to get from here to there. Adam, you've worked on proof of existence tokens, basically, like proof of publishing, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, just thinking about doing something like that for an entire economy with different economic activities, it starts to get really complex. Yeah, I imagine five different software systems that have to be really tightly integrated, including reputation and a marketplace plus the issuance of the cryptocurrency. And so, yeah, I don't see any way that it can't be complicated. And if it's going to function, but the, I guess the core challenges is if it's easy for the participant to use and all that complexity is hidden, then it will work. If it imposes a lot of complexity on participants, then it's not going to work. So Charles, let me tell you about the project that we did because it does have some application here. I think the concern is subjectivity, right? Like that's the the issue. And when you have something that is your computer does it automatically like proof of work, then there's nothing subjective about it because it's literally like, you know, you you can fill up a rain gauge, right? And it's all the same, doesn't matter where it's coming from in the world. But what we did when we were doing a cryptocurrency rewards program that started back in 2014 called LTB coin, we'd had this proof of publishing protocol that basically said that when someone submits a podcast or a written article to the site, after it's gone through our editorial process and actually makes it onto the platform, then it gets a certain fixed payment that was the same amount for everybody who published something that week. And then we would track the performance of that piece of content for the following two weeks. And we would do another one that was prorated so that if your piece of content performed better than all the other pieces of content during that same time period, then you were given a larger amount of the second distribution. So that was how we kind of tried to do it in this quasi-automatable, very clearly, this is what work constitutes something that can be published. But it still ultimately comes down to you have a class of people who in our case were editors. And in the case of, you know, uh, a government would be bureaucrats of some type. That's the problem is just like, Smart contracts, right? Like we, it gets back to the conversation with smart contracts. Smart contracts are in theory incredibly empowering, but in practice, they're incredibly limited because they can only interact with and understand things that are already encapsulated on the blockchain. And so the problem is, of course, that then you have to, someone has to put information that isn't naturally on the blockchain onto the blockchain and you have to be able to trust that person in order to do it. And you're right back there, back to trusting somebody. Uh, in a system that you otherwise would think of as completely decentralized. Yeah, that's a good way of saying it, Adam. I like I like how you said that. Well, there's a, there's an old joke that if you want to start a trustless system, first start with trust and then build on top of it. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of my own philosophy or the building blocks of this idea partly go back to my experience in local small community groups, like um, you know church groups and and political action groups, all marginalized, right? (laughs) So I don't have any experience in centralized bureaucracies. So I notice that the process of governance, if it's quasi-democratic, which things like small community groups tend to be, if they're going to be sustainable, they have to have a form of democracy. Because if somebody, uh, if an autocrat tries to take over this little organization, then it's like people just leave. You know, they vote with their feet. And so the thing disbands. And so there's uh, there's sort of an opt-in quality to the kind of community level thing we're talking about. Uh, and that's one of the key building blocks of success is it, it all has to be opt-in. And if you don't like the group or the, you feel you've been treated badly, then, then anybody can start their own. 
All you have to do is fill out the fill out a form and then voila, you have your own group. And if it doesn't do any work, well, then you don't get any money. But, you know, democracy is always extremely messy. And we've all had experience somewhere in our lives with just how messy and frustrating the whole thing is, right? <laughs> actually, this problem reminds me of jury duty. Like that's actually the thing that, that comes to mind here is you could solve that sort of problem and you could actually have a system that doesn't have central potential bottlenecks if you had a system that was very similar to jury duty on the internet, right? Where essentially what you need is you need transparency. You need the ability for someone who has performed something that looks like work to be able to put that up and say, this is work. Here's the proof that says that, you know, I did it. It's signed by my number. It's never appeared in the same way, you know, in this network before. And then the system picks 10 or 20 local validators who look at a picture of it or are given the address of it or whatever. And they're just kind of random, right? So it wouldn't be like you'd be able to go in and stuff it with uh, with your people, like there are definitely solutions to a problem like that. But I think that that's what you wind up with is a solution where really you just don't want the same person to always be in charge of determining what is work or the same group of people. That's how you determine if it's good enough for government work, Adam. <laughs> you're right. And a jury duty system, it's amazingly clunky when you're in it, right? And you're sitting there in the room and, you know, they're telling you, oh, well, you guys are just leveraged. We're trying to get the guy to plea bargain next door. And it's all like, oh, thank you so much for like, you know, ruining my entire day so you can plea bargain some guy and get a little medal on your bureaucratic checklist, you know, but it does work in many ways. And so I think you're absolutely right. That's the process. And that sort of semi-random selection of oversight from participants who've opted in, that could work as clunky as it is. There is no clean, easy, crisp way to do this. It's going to be messy. Okay. So there are solutions to things like this. So again, it's just about figuring out better ways to validate stuff that's happening off the blockchain and then get that into the blockchain. And the blockchain offers both solutions for that and then also a carrier for it. I like that. It's interesting. When I look at blockchain systems, and I guess it's just a process of just aging and learning, I come to learn like what are aspects of systems that are there by choice and what are aspects of systems that are just properties of trying to solve that problem at the specific scale that it's deployed at. I start learning more and more that the particular problems that I thought had agency behind it, that I thought, you know, the people before me were just jerks. And that's why these 15 reasons were why they were jerks. But this one was like, that, that was also why they were jerks. And then you try to actually solve the problem. And you just sort of find that like, that's that dynamic that you disliked was not them being jerks. It was just sort of an emergent property of trying to actually solve that problem. When it comes to economic theories that apply labor theory to value and currency, and you know, I hope there's someone wiser than I that could tackle that, but it's just that all, all of the things that we look at with subjective theory of value as applied to currency, half of them are there because we're jerks, but the other half of the characteristics are just there because those are the characteristics that are required to solve that type of problem at that type of scale. It would be great if something like an Ithaca Airways could scale to something like the dollar's level of deployment. But I just don't know how much of what we hate about the dollars is by there by choice or there just because it's just a property of solving that problem at that scale. I love your line of thinking because we're talking about the limitation of systems, intrinsic limits. And I think my approach is basically very practical. In other words, when I do my best to look at what causes poverty, what are the inputs into a system? And then the output is poverty. 
And then, of course, we want to change the inputs, right? Because we're not going to change the output without changing the inputs. It's like we need to monetize labor that's totally outside the system. In other words, there's people do a lot of work in the world. And I would guesstimate that probably 80% of the work performed in the world is unpaid. In fact, it's, it's not monetized at all. Sorry, Charles, I just want to interrupt you for one second. It's really interesting that you said that 80% of the world's labor is unpaid. I thought you were going to go in a different direction and talk about System D, which is like the unofficial kind of like economy, you know, that's not really like people don't apply for permits and they don't get regulated. They just kind of sell stuff, you know, or on a small scale or whatever. And some people estimate that's like, you know, 60% of like the world's GDP, or if you could even like quantify it. But then you're saying 80% of the labor is unpaid in the world. And I'm thinking like, yeah, all the like, um, you know, child care and like family care and all that kind of stuff like that just added another dimension to it for me. No, you're right. Probably I, I was overestimating with 80% because as you say, if you include the informal economy, which kind of like the rubric for, you know, the economy you're talking about, the so-called black market or unofficial. Yeah, that's huge too. And so what we're really talking about is how do you solve poverty? You increase the size of that informal economy. You, you give people more opportunities to monetize their labor and be more productive doing so. In other words, there is a self-interest here, right? That's the, that's really the thing we're trying to do here is how can we include cryptocurrencies? and blockchain technologies as inputs into a new system in which people are recognized instantly that they're going to get rewarded for being productive in ways that the community values, not just their own subjective value, but they're responding to the scarcities in their own community as identified by that community. And then a new marketplace is open for their labor so that if there's more opportunity for them to make money in small ways in the informal economy and not have it siphoned off by a centralized corrupt entity. Is the problem you're looking to solve that corruption is centralized? or that there needs to be decentralized corruption, or are you trying to solve both? <laughs> I think what we're trying to do is eliminate as many opportunities for corruption as possible. Is decentralized corruption preferable to centralized corruption? Well, yes, in the sense that it's it's limited by, it's intrinsically limited. If, if there's a corrupt village chief, then he can only plunder the residents of that village. But if it's a corrupt president, then he can plunder all 10,000 villages. And corruption is a lot easier to deal with on a local basis, too. If you look at, like, local city governments and stuff like that, a lot of times those people will actually wind up going to jail. There have been several examples in California in the last couple of years uh, and that seems like it is not really true once you get up to like the federal level, right? At the federal level, things tend to be a little bit easier unless you're doing something against them. Right. And if we look at the life experience of people in corrupt, poverty-stricken areas, they just want an opportunity to make a little more money than they're making now. And, that, and so anything we can do to create new marketplaces and new automated systems that there's fewer cracks where a human intervention enables corruption. If we eliminate as many of those as we can, then people's lives instantly get better. And we found this with people who like say cheap mobile phones for fishermen, and then they instantly have access to the market 
price a few miles away. And if it's higher than what they can get locally, then they can make the calculation. It's worth me bicycling five miles to sell my fish. And so then they make more money. And so what, we, what we're really trying to do is give them the transparency, trust, and greater access to information, if you will, and a larger marketplace. Then they will self-organize to make more money and that will you know, diminish their poverty. Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by EasyDNS.com. EasyDNS.com is a full-service DNS provider, ICANN-accredited domain registrar, and a long-term inhabitant of the Bitcoin ecosystem. As an EasyDNS customer myself since 2014, I really appreciate their responsive, beyond-the-call-of-duty support and wanted to share a recent story. Most of the time, I'll pay for an expiring domain before they expire, but sometimes I don't get to it. For .com or other standard domains, there's a 40-day grace period where you can fix any non-payment issues, but it turns out that's not a universal rule. So I went to renew an important domain and was horrified to find my mistake. EasyDNS support was very helpful. They explained what had happened to me and noted that there were no automated domain catchers for the .fm namespace. So they built one and successfully got my domain back as soon as it became available. I have other stories, but you get the idea. We don't accept many sponsorships on the Let's Talk Bitcoin show. Most interested sponsors want to sell you things, whether directly or through secondary markets. And while most of the time, these are highly speculative, probably illegal circular schemes looking for more greater fools, some of those things are actually real and useful. We only work with products that we can positively ascertain are real and useful. EasyDNS is a great example of a useful sponsor who we love to work with. If you're a business group or community member who'd like to sponsor the Let's Talk Bitcoin show and think you're a good fit too, email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com with the subject sponsor inquiry. And now, back to the show. So Charles, a couple of years ago, you wrote a book that I found pretty meaningful called A Radically Beneficial World, Automation, Technology, and Creating Jobs for All. We've kind of been talking about a lot of things that you discuss in there in terms of problems with the existing system and some of the challenges with the new system. What I'm wondering here, I've been expecting some sort of meaningful collapse for like seven years. <laughs> Part of the reason why I got interested in cryptocurrency was because I thought this system is unsustainable. Unsustainable systems keep going for an indeterminable amount of time, but eventually they fail. And as time has gone on, I feel like maybe that's not the case anymore. And maybe this beneficial new world comes about kind of just layered on top of the dying system rather than actually requiring the system as it stands right now to fail and then for new alternatives to emerge and compete as I had kind of originally thought might be the case. Can you kind of talk to us in broad strokes about not necessarily how you think things will go, but how something like this could emerge? That's a very good question. And I think we can approach it on two levels. One level is there are areas of the global economy that are failing, right? Like, for instance, the situation in Venezuela is really quite desperate. And I have a couple of correspondents there, university-educated, very productive people who are struggling to feed their families. So why did that happen? In other words, why did a, a modern 
economy with a vast resource of oil wealth basically collapse. And, and so there's a lot to look at in that. But clearly, the way that they created and distributed their local currency is a core input into their collapse, right? And so that sort of feeds one of my maxims, which is if we don't change the way we create and distribute money, we change nothing. We change absolutely nothing. Because if the way we create and distribute money now into the very top, the very apex of the wealth power pyramid, then we're basically giving all the leverage and power to the people who get all the new free money, right? Or the free credit. So I think we could see the opportunity for new systems if they were designed and embedded in software that people could use and use sort of intuitively, right? It wasn't super complicated to use then you could see these things arise as in a self-organizing way in places where the official status quo, the centralized system has completely failed, like Venezuela. And then to speak to your, your other point, um, if, if such software was available even in developed countries, in pockets where people don't have enough meaningful work and the marketplace for their work is really limited, we see despair in those places. And we see opioid addictions and, and all the social ills. Uh, because you, I think one of my main points is we humans really need meaningful, purposeful work for a sense of self and security and identity. And we want to be wanted. We want to be needed. And so when you just sort of toss everybody in a community on the trash pile and say, well, we don't have any work for you guys, but here's some universal basic income or, you know, a few bucks for you to get by. We've really destroyed these people's lives because every human needs a positive social role in their community. And so you can kind of see where where I'm trying to connect the dots between cryptocurrencies, a new way of creating and distributing money with a community-based economy that would generate meaningful work for participants who have been left out or left behind by the status quo market economy. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago on the show. So Venezuela is doing a couple of interesting things right now. First off, they're launching a crypto token. It's going to be built on Ethereum, looks like right now, uh, asset-backed, very interesting. The reasons to do that are clear. The other thing that they did, though, at about the same time was they said, if you are mining Bitcoin, you need to have a license in order to do that. And we want to know who everybody is, and we want to be able to essentially proactively say, no, you can't do this. We want to be able to tax you or things like that. <laughs> tax you is like, I think they were more thinking line, along the lines of raid your home than tax you, you know? <laughs> well, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. So, so anyways, the broad question here is that, you know, we're starting to see the very first governments dip their feet into the water on tokens. And along with that, we're seeing controls come down in a meaningful way on alternatives, the predominant alternative being Bitcoin. Are these solutions compatible with current governments? Or is this the sort of thing where, again, like getting back to that big meta question, what does change wind up looking like? Do you think it's even possible that we have meaningful change with, you know, keeping the decentralized, the kind of trustless characteristics about things like Bitcoin, but also having governments actually get in or are they mutually exclusive is the fact that government gets into cryptocurrency means that government tries to lock down all competition. And yeah, they can't ban it, you know, because it's cryptocurrency, but they can prevent all legal companies from do using it in, in most ways. Well, I think it raises a lot of very interesting ideas. In general, I if we identify centralized power as the source of systemic corruption and as the point of leverage that enables corruption to destroy 
or harm an economy, then we would have to conclude that any centralized crypto is already a non-productive element. That it's that it can only do bad things. That it's not going to generate the same good things that a decentralized, non-governmental crypto can do. The second thought I had on Venezuela is there does seem to be a whiff of desperation in this thing of this idea of oh, we're going to back it with oil. This, of course, is like uh, something that really needs to be explored because back in the good old days of of the gold standard. What a gold-backed currency meant was very specific, that a government that was owed money could convert their currency into gold. So you have to be able at some level in the system to convert the Venezuelan cryptocurrency into actual barrels of oil. If you can't do that, then it's not really backed by anything. It's just verbiage. The difference between something that's backed by something in theory versus something that's actually redeemable for something. And the redemption is the mechanism that keeps the system honest rather than the backing itself. The backing itself, like you said, I mean, just someone just has to choose not to do anything, right? And then suddenly the entire value proposition is gone. Whereas if it actually is, but there you get, you get back into that same problem, right? Where it's like, even if it is redeemable, you have to trust the Venezuelan government is going to continue to redeem it in some long-term form. Otherwise, there's the, the, the redemption now is not even valuable. It'll just suck in more people. Redemptions are a, a very funny thing. It's, it's even a problem in quote-unquote first world countries. One of my favorite examples of this is America did Germany the great favor of holding on to nearly all of its physical gold. And then about five or six years ago, Germany said, hey, you know, America... We think we're ready to hold on to our own gold again. Can we get that back? And the state of New York said, hey, we're glad you want your gold back. We think we're doing a good enough job holding on to it for you. Uh, don't worry about it. Yeah, it's going to take us nine years to give it all back or something like that. I so remember what you, that. What do, you, what do you mean, don't worry about it? They go, don't worry, bro. We got this. Don't worry. We got your gold. It's here. They go, well, can we inspect it? And they go, no. And they go, no, but, but seriously, we're going to have to inspect it. So the German inspectors came to New York and New York presented what they declared was a randomly chosen allotment of gold bars from their backing, which was like three bars, and then let them look at the three bars and say, inspect the quality of these three bars that were randomly chosen from your billions and billions of dollars of bars of gold. Um, and to this day, Germany has yet to successfully withdraw their gold that New York is holding so charitably on their behalf. So Venezuela claiming that they have something backed by something, I think will become very interesting when anyone buys the actual tokens and then asks for delivery. Yeah, that does seem to be a problem, especially with something really messy like oil. <laughs> right. Yeah, you're going to, maybe you can take futures contracts, but yeah. And so it, it's obvious, like if we were the committee of the deep state, right, and it was our job to nullify the independence of cryptocurrencies, right, then what would we do? Well, of course, our first job would be our first thought. Well, let's just um, nationalize all the cryptos, you know, or ban everything that we don't, every crypto that we don't control. That would be our first avenue of action, right? So Venezuela's action makes perfect sense to those people who are trying to protect their position of centralized power. We would expect nothing less of them. 
So Charles, your website is ofTwoMinds.com. If anybody wants to take a look at your pretty frequent blogging on crypto and other topics. And then uh, also, like I said, your book, A Radically Beneficial World. I don't normally mention books a bunch of times, but I really did enjoy this. It's free on Kindle if you have an Amazon subscription. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show was provided by Stephanie Murphy, Jonathan Mohan, Charles Hugh Smith, and Adam B. Levine. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubin and Gertie Beats. This episode was edited by Matthew Zipkin. Have a good one.